We're going to continue in Job. We've been in it for a while, but we're really getting toward the end here, aren't we? Uh, chapters 38 and 39, God rebukes Job for darkening counsel by speaking words without knowledge. That was chapter 38, verse 2, where God first begins to speak and He rebukes Job for that. And then what we have is just one long, consistent rebuke in the end of the book. In uh, his devastating cross-examination of Job, God asks over 40, or not 40, but over 70 questions. 70 questions He asks Job uh, regarding creation and, and rulership. Uh, and these questions were meant not to be answered by Job because he literally could not answer them. They were above his pay grade, so to speak, but to expose his ignorance to expose his finitude, and to expose his total, absolute reliance on God. And uh, in chapters 38 and 39, God declares 21 things that He alone rules over. Uh, we see or saw 11 in chapter 38, 1 through 38. That's what we focused on last week. And then there's another 10 in chapter 38, verses 39 to chapter 39, verse 30. So the very end of 38 and all of 39, we have 10 more there. And as I said last Sunday, we focused on the first set, and this morning we'll look at the second set. Now, the first set, if, if you were here or if you've read Job 38, it deals primarily with the creation of the earth and, and some of the earth's more mysterious features like the weather, like its underworld, um, and that would be the, the, the deeps in the seas and, and even Sheol. And then also another mysterious thing pertaining to the earth would be the heavenly hosts, and that would be the sun, moon, and, and, and all the stars and all the constellations. So the first set of questions or points that God makes about His rulership, they deal with creation per se. And in particular, the earth and, its, and some of its mysterious functions. And the second set is kind of different. It's really different, actually. Um, it deals with God's creation of rule over and care for the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom. So it's another function of the earth, but it just pertains to the animals. And, and there are animals that are identified in this text, but the idea is that he's referring to all animals. Right? There's a list of animals in particular that God rules over and cares for, but really the broader meaning is, is all of the animals. Take your Bibles and turn to Job 38. We'll focus, as I said, on 39, 38, verse 39, all the way through the end of 39, chapter 39, that is. I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll get right to it. Lord, thanks for your word, and thanks for this amazing study. I have really, really been enjoying Job pretty much the whole time, but in particular ever since Elihu started speaking. Um, it's not that I don't love the rest of the book, I do, but I, I love from that point on, it's kind of a pivotal moment, and I especially love 38 all the way through the end of the book where you are speaking directly to Job, not through a servant, not through a, a believer, but you are speaking directly, and um, I find these final chapters to be very fascinating and very challenging. And so, Lord, we just want to draw from uh, really the end of 38 and chapter 39 here this morning all that we can from it and, and really bring you glory in our attention, our notes, and primarily in our application of the truth. And so be glorified during this sermon and guide us and lead us and direct us. Open our eyes and, and ears and hearts and minds to your word that we might apply it and live it out. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday. That would be the 12th thing that God rules over, right? We did 1 through 11. Now we're at number 12, beginning with the animals. God rules over the lion. He rules over the lion, and we see this in chapter 38, verses 39 through 40, two verses 
This is what God says next to Job after hammering him on some of the functions of the earth, that he rules over all those things. Now he says, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Stop there. Really, all God is doing is continuing his cross-examination. Um, and he begins with this, this new subject matter of the animals. He begins by referencing one of the great apex predators, right? The lion, pretty much the fiercest apex predator on the earth. Yeah, you've got the crocodiles and all that stuff. But man, when I think of the ultimate apex, highest predator, I think of the lion, especially the big males with the big manes out on the Serengeti. Never wanted to cross paths with those. I have problems with the cats in our neighborhood. I can't even imagine dealing with something like this. So he brings up this first. It's true, I really do have problems with the cats. He brings up this first animal here, and it is the lion. God asks Job a question. Can you essentially hunt? Can you find prey? And we're talking about a lioness here. Can you find prey? Can you provide prey for the lioness? Lioness or satisfy the appetites of her cubs, he calls the young lions. That's what he's asking. So we're not even talking about a male lion. We're talking about a lioness and her younglings, her cubs. And the answer to the question is no. This is not something that, that Job can do. He can't find prey or provide prey for the lioness and her cubs. Continuing, he's He's saying, can you, uh, or do you provide the prey for the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in the thicket, or that would be tall grass? Again, the answer is no. Job does not do these things. It is God. God means you don't do these things. I do these things. I give the lioness and her cubs prey. So kind of following the same format as last week, what is the point here in this first pair of verses. It's that, and it's going to be repeating, God created, God rules over, and God cares for the lion. And that's really a, a profound thought when you think about it because we tend to think that lions and all things on the earth kind of function in an automatic way. They're instinctual and they just function. God set it in motion. Now everything is just going about minding its business and doing whatever is necessary. But the beauty of chapter 38 and 39, it's showing God is the one who is behind all this. That his sovereignty actually comes down at that level, even in the provision of prey for the lion. Uh, I think it was Carla last week that was really struck by uh, the message and really the, the text and just said, I, my, my view of God is, is being expanded and it's pretty mind-blowing that he's literally over all of even the intricate details of creation. And he really is. And that was a profound thing that Carla said, and I praised her for it. Like, another point here would be like the lion, Job is finite, right? The lion is created by God. It's reliant on God. Job is finite, just as a lion is finite. The lion is dependent, a dependent creature on God for its living and life and food. Job is a dependent creature whom God created, rules over, and cares for. So as God created, rules over, and cares for the lion, the same reality and truth applies to Job. Therefore, because Job has kind of set himself up in his self-righteousness and pride, Job, you're not God. You don't care for the lion. You, you don't do these things. I do. Therefore, the big point being that Job needs to humble himself. He needs to humble himself. He needs to repent of what he was called out on back in the previous chapter, his words without knowledge. He needs to submit to God's rule. And he needs to do the biggest thing in times of affliction and trouble where things are scarce. He needs to do the biggest thing, and that is to trust God. God to provide. Somehow the lion instinctually trusts God to provide. And, 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 and I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing that God has wired the lion to be that way. And quite frankly, he has wired his people to be this way. We are to trust that he will provide, even though Job has had everything taken away. So that's the point 
Now we can move to the 20th thing that God, or not the 20th, the 13th thing that God rules over. You're probably thinking, wow, he's going to really be moving quickly today if he's jumping the 20. Cameron's like, good, I have a lot more time for communion. No, you don't. Uh, number 13, God rules over the next animal, the raven. Uh, this is uh, chapter 38, verse 41, so the very end of chapter 38. He says this to Job, Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? God is saying to Job, Who gives the, the raven its food? Is it you, Job? The clear answer is no. God is saying, who, who takes care of the raven's chicks when they cry to me, to God, for help and wander about because they need food? Maybe they don't have enough food on that morning or whatever, and they're wandering about crying out to me for food. Is it you that answers those cries and provides them with the sustenance that they need? No, it's not. Job, you don't do that. Do you respond to their gurgling, croaking? And by the way, that's the sound a raven makes. Is it you that responds to that sound when they're hungry? And is it you that gives them the mice and the eggs and the berries? Yes, that's what they eat. I had to do some research. I thought they just ate worms. Is it you that provides these materials, these food sources for the raven? No, it's not you. You don't do any of this. I give the raven and her young their prey. I provide for them. What's the point? God created, rules over, and cares for the raven. Like the raven, Job is a finite, dependent creature whom God created, rules over, and cares for. Therefore, Job should humble himself, repent, and submit to God's rule and trust that God will provide. Rather than railing on and hurling accusations against God and doubting in God's goodness, doubting in God's care. He should repent of all that and trust. And we understand that it's a hard thing to do in the midst of affliction, especially when we have losses. Fourteenth thing God, uh, 14th thing God rules over, God, it's just the choice of animals, right? It's just like, okay, so you go from the lion, the apex, to a raven, and now it's the goat. It's a goat. I just think that's funny. This is in chapter 39, verse 1a. God rules over the goat. He says, do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? <laughs> Stop there. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Job has got to be thinking, these are some really bizarre questions coming from the Lord, right? Mountain goats is what he's actually talking about here. And if you've ever even seen a mountain goat, they're an extraordinary creature. They really are. They are sure-footed. They are sure-footed climbers. I mean, they're they're. It's it's just amazing that they can scale the side of a mountain with hooves. And uh, they usually are seen on on cliffs or on ice. Um, have you ever seen one in person? I have. Years ago, I attended a conference in Colorado Springs. And the facility that, uh, that this conference was at was situated at the foot of Pikes Peak, which is basically the tallest mountain in that few-mile area because Colorado has more mountains over 14,000 feet than I think anywhere in the world. And Pikes Peak is almost 15,000 feet, and it's intimidating. And uh, this conference center was right at the base of it. And, you know, 6 a.m., I'd get up, and, and that's not easy for me, by the way, but I'd get up and I'd have some coffee and I'd look out the window of this conference center that was surrounded by woods, and there's not a whole lot of woods in this area. If you've ever been to the Rockies, they're literally Rockies. And you'd look out over the grassland of this conference center, and you'd see these mountain goats, these bearded guys, white bearded with the horns. They would come down off the side of the mountain, and they would graze in the grass. And within a couple of hours, they would just dart right back up the, side, the face of the mountain, literally. And it would, be, it would be steep, and they would just go right up it. They'd go like this and zigzag serpentine up it. It was just astonishing. I couldn't believe it. They are the ultimate rock climbers. They really are. Now, pregnant female mountain goats, they're called nannies, by the way. And I think just 
pregnant female goats in general, not just mountain goats. They're called nannies. I wonder if that's where we got the uh, word for the nannies that, you know, like the Brits, they always have the nannies. You're a pregnant goat, by the way, woman. Uh, that was cruel. The nannies are, are a bit bizarre because when they're pregnant and getting close to giving birth, they literally disappear. They, they actually do congregate in flocks, the mountain goats do. They hang out together, and when the nannies are ready to give birth, they disappear onto the mountainside somewhere. And the places that they choose to give birth to the young are, seriously, like 1,000-foot sheer cliffs, right on the edge of a cliff, or in some kind of a crevice or something like that. But they literally leave the other mountain goats, and they go find some remote, secluded ledge, scale up to that, and then give birth up there. This is a spot where we would never play with our children, right? This is like insane. This is what they do. They go to these inaccessible ledges, and then after the kid, that's what a baby goat's called, after the kid, I wonder if that's where we got the word for our kids. I don't know, man. We copy all the animal words. Once they give birth, within three to four days tops, they scale back down to where the rest of the flock is with the baby. By two days, three days, the baby can climb, hop, jump, scale the side of a mountain. It's amazing. Just within a few days, and so just after a couple of days, mama and her kid, the nanny and her kid, they go back to the rest of the group. You get the idea of what, what God is asking Job here with these mysterious, sure-footed climbers that you, you don't know where they give birth or actually when they're... We know their gestation period, but we don't know exactly when. God is asking Job, do you know how this happens? Have you ever scaled the side of a mountain and watched a nanny give birth to her kid? Are you familiar with how that works, Job? Do you know when that actually happens? Can you give me a precise date on which they do that, the nannies give birth. This is the question that he's asking Job. And, of course, the answer from Job is, I have no idea. I, 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 Job, he may have never even seen a mountain goat with where he was living in Edom. There were some mountains around there. There still are, but no, he doesn't know. God is saying, you don't know these things. I know these mysterious things. I know the cracks and crevices and the ledges where they give birth. I know when they give birth. I know when and where. What's the point? God created rules over and cares for the goat or the mountain goat. And like the mountain goat or the goat, Job is also a finite, dependent creature whom God created, whom God rules over, whom God cares for therefore he should what humble himself repent stop speaking nonsense stop acting like he's god knowing all the things that should happen in his life he should repent of all that submit to god as he had done before his travail and trust that god will provide 15th thing another interesting creature for god to declare here 15, God rules over the dough. The dough, chapter 39, verses 1b through 4. And some of these sections will get a little bit bigger, but they're very, very simple and easy to understand. That's why there's not much commentary on them. He says this, Do you observe the calving or the calving of the doughs? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered uh, delivered of their young. Uh, their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. So, talking about mountain goats and them giving birth. Now he's talking about the doe and her giving birth. God is essentially saying, do you observe the, the, the day or the month and time when the doe gives birth to her fawn? Is that something that, that, that you're over, that you're in charge of, that you witness, that you see? No. Do you know and understand how long the gestation period is? No, you don't. 
You might have a sense of how long it is, but you don't know precisely. Do you know exactly how many months it takes to go from conception to the dough crouching to deliver? Because that's what they do. No, you don't know the answer to this either, Job. Do you know who makes the young fawn strong so that it grows up and goes out never to return? No, you don't know that, Job. I observe the doe giving birth. I determine the gestation period, the precise amount of months, days, uh, and, and literally hours and minutes uh, of the, from the point of, of, of literally from the point of conception to the point of birth. I am the one who causes Bambi to grow up and become a strong buck. I'm the one who does that. Not you, Job. What's the point? God created, rules over, and cares for the dough. You know, earlier, God is talking about how He provides food for the animals. Now He's talking about their birthing cycles. God is over the full panorama here, everything that has to do with these animals. He's in charge of that. He's over that. And like the doe, Job is a finite, dependent creature whom God created, whom God rules over and cares for. Therefore, Job should humble himself, repent of all the nonsense, the words without knowledge, just clouding up wisdom, misrepresenting God. He should repent of all of that and submit to God's rulership. It's important that he learns how to do that again and obviously to trust that God will provide. And I can... Again, understand why Job feels the way he does. He's lost everything. And when you had everything and lost everything, you wonder if God will provide. And Job has to take his examples from all these animals that if God takes care of them, do the math. He's going to take care of you. Sixteenth thing God rules over. Uh, we're getting a little stranger, but not quite yet. When we get to the ostrich, it's like just really weird because ostriches are bananas crazy. 16, God rules over the donkey. He rules over the donkey. Um, I'd like to know how the King James puts it. I think I have a sense of what it would say there. Uh, and I will, uh, your children are in here, so we won't use the King James today. Uh, chapter 39, verses 5 to 8. Somebody needs to look it up and see if it does that, because it uses, usually uses the other word. Uh, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who's done that? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. This has got to be the most majestic explanation of a donkey in the history of mankind. Amen? What are we talking about here? This is like a noble creature. It's a donkey. God is essentially saying to Job, who gave the wild donkey its natural instinct to want to be free? It doesn't want to be corralled. It doesn't want to be trained. It doesn't want to guide a cart or a driver. Who gave it this instinct? Who gave it the instinct and the desire and the will to make his dwelling place, the arid plain, the salt land? You get the idea of, Kind of like Southern California when you're driving to Arizona, just that the Mojave, you just get the idea that this is just a, the salt lands. This is not an appealing, pretty place. Who is it that, that has caused the donkey to, to want to be free and to want to roam in those kinds of places, places where you wouldn't want to be? Was it you, Job? No, it was not. Who gave the wild donkey its temperament? so that it rejects the tumultuous, noisy cities, right? To, to find pasture in the mountains where it searches after every green thing to eat. Was that you, Job, that wired the donkey to be that way? No, it was me. I gave the donkey its instincts. I gave it its temperament, not you. The point, once again, God created, rules over, and cares for the donkey. And like the donkey... And Job was certainly acting like a donkey at this point, wasn't he? Job is, of course, a finite, dependent creature whom God created, whom God rules over, whom God cares for. Therefore, he should follow 
that the right course of action, which is humility, repentance, submitting to God's rule, and trusting that God will care. Number 17, God rules over the ox. This is in 39 verses 9 to 12. And it, it seems like there's kind of a progression here that God is going toward animals that really can't be tamed well, right? I mean, you can get an ox, you can, you can yoke an ox after, you can't just do that with a wild ox, you'll get blasted. But over time, you can train one to some degree. It always has that spirit about it, but you can do that. But it seems like what God is doing here is He's taking Job deeper and deeper into the types of animals that just really cannot be trained well, at least not in His day. The ox here, He says this, is the wild ox, and it's not just an ox, it's the wild one, is it willing to serve you or is it willing to buck you a mile into the air? It doesn't say that, that's my addition to it, right? Would the wild ox serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? I love that, manger. We're reminded of Jesus in the manger. Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Stop there. God is challenging Job really in regards to the stubbornness of the ox, which is a characteristic that Job has now developed toward God. You've heard the phrase, you stubborn ox. That's exactly what Job is acting like now. He is like, I think God is talking about the ox, but he's really talking about Job who is acting like a stubborn ox. He says, Job, can you somehow humble or kind of train and subdue the wild ox to come under your authority? No, you cannot do that. Can you bind the wild ox with ropes and steer him to furrow the ground in the valleys before you and after you? Absolutely not. If you attempt to do that, you're probably going to get killed. No, you can't. Can you tame the wild ox? No, you can't tame the wild ox. And yet, can you train the wild ox so that you can utilize its great strength in your labors? This is something Job could do. Do you trust that the wild ox or the ox, after you've spent some time with it and, and taught it a few things and got it to kind of humble a little bit, do you think that it would be useful in your farming? The answer to that one is yes. So you have a series of no's and then you have two yeses. What is the point? God created, rules over, and cares for the ox. He's wired the ox to be the way that it is. And like the ox, Job was stubborn and needed to be broken of his wild accusations against God. You see the connection? He needed to be bound by the fetters of divine discipline until the Almighty tamed him. That's the connection here. Therefore, Job's only response should be humiliation or he should humble himself, repent of his words without knowledge. He should submit to God's rule. He should trust that God will provide. Even the ox, which is a stubborn, robust, and somewhat dangerous animal, even that animal, seemingly dumb, but not really dumb, just instinctual in a way, even that animal trusts God for provision. Even that animal. Let's move to the 18th thing. God rules over. I wonder if God in some way is just comparing to Job to all these animals, not just the ox. Number 18, God rules over, this is the weirdest one, I think, the ostrich. Ostriches are weird. I had one jack me up my snow cone at a zoo one time when I was a kid. I was like, dude, you're lucky it's not Thanksgiving. I'd have the world's biggest turkey right now. Destroyed me. Just snagged it right out of my hand. Just... Uh, he rules over the ostrich. I remember that. You remember these things. You don't forget these things, right? And if your parents are good parents, they don't let you forget them. Remember the time the ostrich snagged your snow cone and you cried for three hours and pooped your pants? That's good parenting. Chapter 39, verses 13 to 18. Listen to what he says about the ostrich. And I don't know what parents talk like that. Uh, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. 
but they really don't get it anywhere, do they? Right? The, 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 ings, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed by the ground or on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that they, a wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. It's almost like he's saying, I made the ostrich a dummy. When she rouses her, herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider or his rider. Stop there. Obviously, God is now describing the ostrich. It is a, a weird, odd-looking bird. It has bizarre features and really, really weird behavior. Now, rather than asking a series of rhetorical questions, this section, uh, instead, it contains declarative statements. Uh, the point, it really, is that Job could not explain the ostrich. And I think just as we really can't. Now, we might be able to describe its physical features and monitor its behavior for a while and describe that, but for the most part, it's just a weird animal, right? It's a weird bird. And the idea here is that, you know, Job, you can't describe the ostrich, neither can you describe me, which is what you've been attempting to do. God is not saying I'm weird like an ostrich, I'm mysterious like an ostrich, and you think you have me pinned down, and you don't just as you don't have the ostrich pinned down. God says here, Job, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But as I said, it really doesn't get anywhere. It can't fly. It, they wave proudly. And then the question God asks is, but does she use them for the purposes of love? Well, what would that look like if an ostrich used her wings for the purpose of love? She would use them as other birds do to shield and protect her young to shield and protect her eggs, right? She would do that. She would use her wings to protect her eggs from predators and so on. Does she do that, Job? No, she doesn't use her wings for that. In fact, she leaves her eggs on the ground where they are, uh, are warmed on the ground, but they are also in danger of being crushed by a wild beast. What God is saying here is that, look, this, this particular bird acts like it doesn't care about its eggs or young. And I think the ostrich by its own instinct, knows that its eggs like an inch thick and they're really, really hard to penetrate and break. But at the same time, it does abandon its eggs. It does abandon the young. Now, the, the ostrich, according to God here, acts like her young are not her young. She acts like they're not hers, despite the fact, and he says, that her labor was vigorous, right? These are big eggs. Wouldn't be fun to, to deliver eggs the size of this. It would be horrible. And he's saying, God is literally saying, she acts like they're not even her young, although she went through all the travail to bring them into the world. He is saying, have you observed the ostrich and her strange, uncaring behavior toward her eggs and chicks? No, this is not an observation that you've made. It's not something you've watched. Um, God is saying, Job, do you know that I wired the ostrich to be this way? that I withheld wisdom and understanding from the ostrich? No, you don't understand that either, that I've made the ostrich the way that it is, and it, everything that it does is according to the way I designed it. Uh, he's asking Job, do you know how fast an ostrich can run? Do you understand that? Do you know that? That when she flees from a horse and rider, she laughs. Why does she laugh when she flees from a horse and rider? Because she blows their doors off. She's faster. An ostrich is faster than a horse by 15 miles an hour. The average ostrich runs 45 miles an hour um, consistently. The average horse, 30 miles an hour. We're not talking about a Kentucky thoroughbred. We're talking about a regular horse. So God is saying, do you know how fast an ostrich can run? It runs so fast that if a horse and rider were to tamper with it, to mess with it, to threaten it, it runs and looks back and scoffs and laughs because it leaves them in her dust. Do you understand these things, Job? Do you know these realities, these truths about the ostrich? No, you don't. You don't understand any of this. What's the point? God created rules over and cares for the ostrich, even though it's the, just a bizarre creature, but God created it that way. 
And I don't know what's mo more bizarre, the ostrich or Job with the way he's acting. Point being, Job is being weird like an ostrich, but he is a finite dependent creature whom God also created. He's just higher on the scale, but God created him. God rules over him. God cares for him just as he takes care of the strangest animals, the ostrich. Therefore, Job should humble, repent, right, submit, and trust that God will provide. I mean, think about it. If God's going to take care of this weird animal out in the prairie lands, the ostrich out in the dry lands, and it's just a weird animal, if he's going to take care of that, you can't trust him to take care of you? That's the point. Let's move to the 19th thing God rules over. Number 19, God rules over the horse. Now we're getting to, this isn't really a strange animal. This is a more majestic animal. Uh, chapter 39, verses 19 to 25. And as we read this, I think you'll notice that it's not just a regular horse. This is a war horse that God is talking about here. He says this to Job, Okay, we just talked about the ostrich. You don't have anything to do with that as usual. Here we go, Job. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? Uh, his majestic snorting is terrifying, and they can be. The war horse is pretty terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. Talking about how an enemy or a soldier would carry his weapons of war on the horse, and it doesn't bother the horse at all. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. It's the idea of just this incredible power and speed as he rushes into battle. He swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. That's a war trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! This is what the horse says. It's time! And he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains, and the shouting. These are the war cries. This is amazing imagery that God uses here. And he shifts this discourse to the horse. And I'll tell you, he goes from ostrich to horse. You go from one really weird animal to one awesome animal. And I think there's a point to that. I just don't know what it is. Now, rather than being the object of ridicule like the strutting ostrich, the horse uh, was admired for its strength, admired for its valor, especially in the face of danger. And as I said, this is the war horse here. Now, returning to the form of rhetorical questions, God begins to ask a series of them. Job, is it you that made the horse powerful? No. Do you give the horse his mane? No, but you might want to brush that one over there, and that's as far as you get. Did you give the horse his ability to leap in the air like a locust? You, can you, did you give the, the horse its, its power and agility and strength and instinct to, to hop like, like a big grasshopper over a six-foot fence and these sorts of things? Did you give it its ability to leap in the air like that? No, you didn't. Did you make his majestic snorting terrifying to the enemy? No, you didn't even give him his snorting abilities. Did you give the horse his courage to paw through the valley and charge headlong into battle against a myriad of weapons, to, to laugh at fear, to never uh, turn back from the sword? And have you ever noticed that, at least in the movies, the way it's depicted? You've got you know, horses and riders running right into weapons, and horses do not flinch. They go right in. It's amazing. And this is what God is illustrating. Did you make the horse so it has that kind of courage that it would do that? That it would even carry the clanging weapons of war on its back right into the battle without flinching? Do you give the horse that courage? No. Do you give the horse his fierce stamina so that it runs so hard and so fast and prolonged that it's as if he's swallowing up the ground in front of him? Did you make the horse to be this way? No. Job, did you give the horse its intelligence so that when it hears the trumpet blast, he says, aha, it's time to go to war? Did you give him that? No. Did you give the horse his keen sense of hearing so that he can hear the thunder of the captains and the battle cries in the distance? No, you didn't do that either. 
Did you give the horse his keen sense of smell so that he can smell the battle from afar? No, you didn't do that. I gave the horse its power, its mane, his, his leap, his snorting, terrifying snoring, his courage, his speed, intelligence, hearing, smell. I gave the horse all of these characteristics, all of these attributes. You have given it nothing, is what he's saying. What's the point? God created rules over and cares for the horse. And Job is more like a donkey or an ox, not like a majestic horse. And he's, just, he's, he's at a bad place right now. And God is saying to him, you too are a created creature. You are dependent on me. I created you. I rule over you. I care for you. Therefore, Job, you should humble yourself. You should repent. You should submit to me. You should trust that I will care for you. I know you've lost everything, but you need to trust that I will once again provide for you. That's the point. 20th. Now we're at the 20th thing God rules over. We're moving quickly, and this is good. God rules over the hawk. So it's like God bounces back and forth between land animals and animals of the air, right? Now we've got the hawk. We see this in chapter 39, verse 26. Very simple verse here. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soar and spreads his wings toward the south? God's review of the animals in the text here, it concludes with two birds, the hawk and the eagle, both of which are known to soar at incredible heights. I don't know if you knew this or not. I certainly didn't. But migrating hawks, and I didn't even know hawks migrate, but there are northern hawks in the colder territories that do migrate south for the winter. And um, they typically fly at 1,000 meters. That's 3,281 feet. So that's the average altitude that a migrating hawk flies at. And I say eagles because that's the next bird that God talks about. Eagles, on the other hand, this is amazing to me. I had no idea. Eagles can fly at 6,000 meters, 20,000 feet. They have been seen out of the windows of airplanes. They have been studied and researched to fly that high. That is high. That's almost, what, four miles? They fly that high. And God is, is using these high-flying predators to illustrate the heights of His divine wisdom and understanding compared to that of earth-bound, finite Job. That's the idea. You see the eagles and the hawks soaring at elevation. My wisdom is higher than that, Job. You're just down here on the ground like an ox, like a donkey. That's kind of the point here. And it's more than that. God says, Job, is it by your understanding that the hawk or hawk takes flight and soars high above the earth toward the south? Is it by your understanding that that takes place? No, it's not. He's saying, Job, did, did you establish the, the migratory instinct of the northern hawk to fly south for the winter? Did you program the northern hawk to be that way? No, you didn't. It is I, and by my understanding that the hawk does this, I give the hawk its instincts. I call the northern hawks out of the north and send them to the south when it starts getting really, really, really cold in the north, when they want to warm up down there and hang out in the Bahamas or wherever they're at. They're probably here in the Central Valley, right? It's hotter than heck here. I'm the one that does this, Job. You don't do any of this. What's the point? God created rules over and cares for the hawk. And like the hawk, Job is also a finite, dependent creature whom God created, whom God rules over, whom God cares for. Job, you need to humble yourself. You need to repent. You need to submit to my rule. You need to trust that I will again provide for you just as I care for the hawk and keep it safe and warm, causing it to fly south. That's the point. And lastly, I think we're at our final thing that God rules over, number 21. God rules over, we've already mentioned it, what? The eagle. So a hawk is a pretty majestic, awesome 
animal, bird, but the eagle, boy, I'll tell you, that's at the top of the chain there. We see this in chapter 39, 27 to 30, the last three verses of this chapter. He says this to Job, very next thing after hammering him about the hawk. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from afar, uh, from far away. His young ones suck up the blood, uh, and where the slain are, there is he. Stop right there. That's the end of the chapter. God is saying, Job, did you command the eagle to make his nest way up high in those high places? No, you didn't. Did you guide uh, the eagle to the rocks high above where he makes his home? No. Did you establish the rocky uh, crag as his stronghold? No. Uh, Job, I'm just curious here since you seem to know all things. Did you give the eagle his razor-sharp vision so he can spot his prey down below the foliage or down in the foliage or far away in the distance? No. And by the way, I read in my research that even in upwards of, at the maximum height that an eagle will fly at, its vision is precise enough to see prey down on the ground, even at maximum elevation. That's insane. Those are some precise eyeballs that these eagles have. And he's saying, is that, did you make them that way? Did you give them that eyesight? No, you did not. He also says, Do you, are you the one that nourishes the eagle's eaglets with the blood of prey when they are too young to consume meat? Because when eaglets are very, very young, they just suck the blood like a vampire. They don't eat the meat yet. Did you create them to be that way? Did you create twilight with eagles? No, you did not. Cheesy. That was just so cringe. I'll hear about it later. No, you didn't do that. Do the eagles glisten when they go in the sunlight? No, that's even, that's even worse. That's worse twilight. Twilight, oh my goodness, terrible. Did you create them to be this way? No, you didn't. I command the eagle to make his nest up high among the treetops, among the high rocks. I'm the one that does that. I make the, the rocky crag the eagle's stronghold. I, I give the, the eagle his keen vision and prey. I'm the one that gave him that vision. I give the eaglets the instinct to, to suck up the blood from the prey when they're too young to consume the meat. I, I'm the one that made them to be that way. In fact, I'm the one that gives them their prey. I'm the one that provides for them. I give them the rabbits. I give them the small critters and animals. I, I do it. What's the point? God created, rules over, and cares for even the eagle. And like the eagle, Job is a finite, dependent creature whom God created, rules over, and cares for. Therefore, Job should stop his shenanigans. Stop complaining, stop whining, stop trying to command God, stop trying to teach God, stop trying to challenge God on how God should run his life. He needs to put an end to all this nonsense. Even though he's suffering and God understands this, there is compassion here in this text. There is. It's not just... You're a dummy. God is not saying that. But Job still needs to recognize what he's doing. He needs to submit to God's rule. He needs to trust that God will provide. And you know what? I believe right after all this calamity befell Job, he did do these things pretty well. It wasn't until his friends started grilling them where he really started to get off track. So choose your friends wisely. Amen? Closing. Throughout this divine cross-examination, Job was jolted by God's relentless verbal assault. I mean, he's just, we see that he's jolted in the very next chapter after a couple of verses there. He's like, he just, he tells God, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up for now on. He's jolted by this. And he literally thought he had all the answers, right? But now such arrogant presumption was rapidly slipping away from him. Job was beginning to realize he had none of the answers. He certainly couldn't answer any of these questions. Now, why did God put Job through this painful exam? So that he could literally reveal his greatness to Job. 
Because at the end of the day, that's the thing that was under attack by Job, was God's greatness. I don't think God is so great with my life spiraling out of control. I know you other Christians in here that have great lives and you're not going through this. You can easily say that God is great, but I don't know because I'm, I've got a different lot I'm dealing with. I'm not confessing that to you. I'm saying that is the attitude of Job. Through this divine interrogation, God taught Job that he alone created everything, that he alone rules over everything, and that he alone cares for everything. God taught Job that he has the right to do whatever he pleases with his creation, that he alone is sovereign and thus not accountable to man, because that's precisely what Job was trying to do for the way his life was going, hold God accountable for his circumstances. God is clearly saying through this, I'm the one that creates everything, the animals, the earth, the constellations, the eagles, everything. They are at my command, and I do what, with them what I will do with them whenever I want. I am not accountable to my creation. I'm not accountable to you. I have the freedom and liberty to do as I please. And yet, we know God can do whatever He wants with His creation. We know that whatever He does with it, even when it seems harsh or difficult or unjust, that it is actually righteous and that it is just and that it, maybe it doesn't fit into our understanding of the way things should work, but it fits perfectly in His. And that's why we need to tread very carefully when we see things. God, even though He has the right to do everything that He wants with His creation and does that, we know this, we understand this. We also know that God has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This is a verse that we come back to over and over, right? Romans 8, 38. And I, I would add to that, just as He did for Job. Doesn't, don't things turn around for Job? You see, all of this befalls Job according to the sovereign plan and will of God. It's torturous for Job, but God means it for his good. And in the end, God does give him back what he had and even more so. But God teaches Job things that are priceless. Not to put his stock in his own self-righteousness, not to put stock in himself, not to question God in an irreverent way. It's okay to ask God questions, but there is an irreverence that comes through us at times. He taught Job profound lessons through this that Job would have never learned without the affliction. So God truly does whatever He wants, but He also promises, even though there's difficult things that happen to us, that He will work them for our good. And I would just simply ask as I wrap up, since we know this to be true, God does whatever He wants, but He also promises to work everything for our good, why then are we fearful? Why then are we anxious? Why do we murmur against our sovereign King when we know this? Why? If God created and cares for all these animals, will He not likewise care for those he's redeemed through the bloody death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ? <laughs> Are we not more valuable than lions, ravens, goats, does, donkeys, oxen, weirdo ostriches, horses, hawks, and eagles? Are we not more valuable than all these animals? The cross shouts, we are more valuable. Christ did not go to this, this mechanism of death to redeem a goat. He went to it to redeem some goats. You didn't have to pay for the sins of an eagle. An eagle doesn't sin. The cross shouts we are more valuable. The scripture illustrates this in this text phenomenally and in other places. Are we not more valuable than the birds of the air that our Heavenly Father feeds? 
Matthew 6, 26. We are, the cross shouts, we are more valuable than, than the birds of the air, the eagle and the raven and, and the hawk and, the, and all these other birds. The cross shouts, you are more valuable. Why are you anxious? Why are you worried? Why are you fearful? Two sparrows are sold for a penny. Are we not more valuable than many sparrows? Matthew 10, 29 to 31. This is a question that Jesus asks. The cross shouts, we are more valuable than many sparrows. Than all the sparrows in the world, we have more value as image bearers, or as Matt would say, imagers, a great phrase. We are more valuable than many sparrows. Why do we fear? This Martin Luther quote in your bulletin is profound. It's really his analysis. He says, one drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. That's a keeper right there. Why is the blood of Christ worth more than heaven and earth? What gives blood its value? The person the blood comes from gives its, its value. My blood is not worth what the blood of Christ is worth. Infinite value. The value, a, a high enough level of value to wipe off the face of the earth my sin, which is grievous and filthy and disgusting. Luther is right. And just think about his statement for a moment. I'm trying to illustrate how important or how valuable we are I'm not, this, is not a, this is not a self-help. I'm not trying to work your esteem. I'm illustrating what Christ did. Let me read it again. One drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. Now I think of a question that I would ask or a point that I would make. Jesus did not shed one drop, did He? Did He shed only one drop? No, there are nine pints of blood in the average man. And I would say that as Jesus was scourged and beaten, he certainly lost some blood before he got to the cross, probably a pint or so. I know that once you, once you lose about a pint and a half up to two pints, you're in big trouble. You'll pass out. So he had to have lost probably at least a pint on the way to the cross, Right After being severely beaten and scourged. And this explains why he couldn't carry the cross by himself. Right, That man was called by the Romans to help him. Matthew 27, 32. And while Jesus was hanging and dying on the cross, all the blood that he had left in his body, probably eight pints or so, flowed out from his wounds onto the ground. He bled out. Not one drop left in him. If one drop of Jesus' blood is worth more than heaven and earth, how much is eight pints worth? How much is nine pints worth? Because the blood that he shed before he got to the cross was just as valuable as everything that he bled out on the cross. So in eight pints, there are 75,708 drops. And we don't want to forget that pint he lost on the way. In the end, our redemption cost Jesus all his precious blood. 1 Corinthians 6.20 According to Luther's theory, that would mean that the people whom Jesus bled and died for are worth more than 85,172 heavens and earths. That's you. Why do we fear? We, we don't even understand the value that we have to the Father, which means we don't understand what Jesus did. If, if we understood this more fully, we would certainly live more holy lives for Him, and we would certainly stop challenging God on these tertiary, or tertiary issues and secondary things and flooding Him with anxious prayers because we're terrified. 
we can only begin to grasp what we mean to the Father. And nothing illustrates what we mean to the Father better than the cross where Jesus shed and bled out, all His blood and shed and bled out. Why do we fear? Point is, like the animals in our text, we are finite, dependent creatures whom God created, whom God rules over, whom God cares for. And like Job, we should humble ourselves, repent of our fear, our stubbornness. Some of us sometimes, especially me, become stubborn like an ox or more or less like a donkey. Repent of these things, to repent of our murmurings against our good God who always meets our needs. And we should, like Job, submit to God's rule. Obviously, we need to trust God that He will provide. When has He let you down? When? Never. Never. This is the application of Job 39. 